Hello, hello, and welcome back to A Life Extraordinary. I'm your show host, Roberto, coming to you from my Silver Bullet podcast booth in the mountains of Whistler. I am uh, currently doing an evening podcast, uh, really going to be jumping in today, about one particular destination of which has stayed on my mind uh, and in our hearts as a destination for so many years. And that is the surreal experience of camping in White Sands, New Mexico, down in southern USA. Um, it is a unique uh, destination that I recommend all people to visit one day. Indeed, 600,000 people a year already go to the White Sands, uh, which used to be National Monument and now is National Park. Um, but it's absolutely a place where you feel like you are on another planet completely. And uh, we spent some time camping in there, and it was quite, quite unique to discover all the different things that such a terrain has. Nestled in the Tularosa Basin between Sacramento and San Andres, mountain ranges of southern New Mexico is one-of-a-kind outdoor experience. Within the White Sands National Park, you'll find countless of opportunities to have fun, discover, do activities, and, uh, and really feel like you're on an absolutely other planet. Today, I'm kind of going to be, kind of, I will be focusing on our backcountry camping experience that we had there. Um, I've camped in forests, I've camped by the sea, I've camped in caves, and I've even camped in the snow, but never had I camped on amongst these giant, moving, visceral white sand dunes. White Sands National Park offers people an opportunity to camp amongst the glistening gypsum dunes of New Mexico. Most places in the world, uh, the sand is made up of uh, different type of rocks, and here it's all by gypsum. Um, the desert, though, has its unique hazards. And uh, and I think I'm going to tell you a little bit about that because the dunes shift and change and morph and move um, with the winds, the rains, uh, but particularly the wind. And uh, so you drive in uh, to this national park and, and as you're getting to the, to the back of the area where you can park your car and head off into the back country, as they say, you see these giant white sand dunes in every which way. And soon after you start to walk into the white sand dunes um, and you lose a little elevation as you go between dunes, for example, suddenly everything around you looks exactly the same. And because the parking lot is lower than the dunes tops, when you're standing on the top of the dunes and you've walked in some, everything absolutely disappears um, and looks entirely the same. We were with a friend on that trip and uh, he was helping us ferry stuff to and fro uh, from the car uh, to the camp spot because we also had two of our little ones with us, um, which at the time must have been three and one. Um, so White Sands National Park is an American national park located in New Mexico and it's completely surrounded 
uh, by the White Sands Missile Range. Isn't that lovely? <laughs> uh, camping by the stars and missiles shooting by... No, uh, but it is a military base that surrounds it and uh, and a lot of testing that uh, that many people don't know about goes on in the area and testing for, for military equipment as well. So sometimes they close the park entirely because they're doing uh, such te- uh, tests like that. Uh, the park covers 145,762 acres. So for the Canadian, that's like 590 uh, square kilometers square. <laughs> uh, the gypsum uh, dunified is the largest of its kind on Earth, which makes this place like completely unique. Um, it's got about four and a half billion tons of gypsum sand. Approximately 12,000 years ago, the land within the Tularosa Basin featured large lakes, streams, grasslands, and ice age mammals. But as the climate changed, rain and snowmelt dissolved gypsum from the surrounding mountains and carried it to the basin, further warming and drying, causing the lakes to evaporate and form selenite crystals. Um, thousands of species of animal inhabit the park, a large portion of which are invertebrates. Several animal species feature a white or off-white coloration. Um, and it's a, it's a special place. You know, over 700 years ago, bands of Apaches followed herds of bison from the Great Plains to the basin. So it's got, it's steeped in its um, Indian American history as well. But I digress because none of these things really are what I wanted to talk to you about White Sands National Park. But what I did want to tell you about is the the experience of of camping there? Um, there's a few things before before I jump into that that you can do while there. Uh, you can spot oryx, which is uh, a pretty unique desert animal. Um, another reason white sand is surreal: ninety three African oryx are there, um, and you can spot them. Um, more than uh, three thousand animals, each weighing up to four hundred and fifty pounds, with horns. That average 34 inches roam the dunes. Um, so there you go. The sand is not actually white um, and doesn't act like sand either. Uh, gypsum is actually a clear substance. The dunes appear white like snow. And often people, when they look at our pictures, they say, oh, hey, were you in, was that a winter camping trip? And you're like, no, 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 that's actually uh, desert sand. Um, you can bike and play in the in the moonlight. It used to be uh, a national monument, and it was in changed to a national park in 2019. Where we feel very grateful that it was right pre-pandemic that we were able uh, to visit the park because obviously for two years, basically uh, camping in the backcountry was closed due to the pandemic. So, uh, so definitely something uh, that that needs to be open uh, once again. But uh, so anyway, so you you drive in through these sand dunes and. Um, you pass the park's office, you pay for your, your fee. Uh, they allow very few people to actually camp in the backcountry of the White Sands National Park at a given time. So it's pretty important that you try and make your, your reservations uh, for that. And, uh, and so you, you pay your fee and you, and you drive in this long, winding, white, sandy road um, that leads you to a few different parking lots. And you can explore... Uh, the national park from these different parking lots. Um, there's a little hiking trails, which are really like dune hikes um, that that you can do as well. Uh, some people like to bike around the area, 
And uh, and every day uh, in the evening, they actually close the park. So the people that are camping in there can't leave and nobody obviously can, can come in uh, while you're there. The camp spots are usually are in the valley of the dunes because the wind can get quite ferocious uh, out there. We had one night. So we ended up staying uh, three different nights uh, there. And uh, and we had one evening where the one morning where the sand was so wild and whipped up that every direction you looked, uh, it felt like you were in in a mist of sand. And uh, orienting orienting yourself to to where you are and where the car is is uh, is definitely something that uh, that is very tricky. Uh, indeed, this friend that had come to help us got lost. Uh, for about thirty-five minutes in the in the wrong direction before he realized that he was going in circles and found his way back to us because we'd be like, "Hey, we wonder where Lalo went. Uh, it's been a while that he hasn't been around, and he was just bringing some stuff to the car, and he'd been gone like an hour and a bit. And then when he did come back, it, we found out that really had he had just gotten uh, lost out there uh, walking around. But the the landscape really makes you feel. Like you're on another planet uh, entirely. Um, you you do need to to bring your own tent and mattresses and sleeping bags and stove. Um, there's a few fun things that you can do. Uh, you can sled down the dunes and you could rent a or buy a little sled at the store uh, to do so. We we had a blast doing it with Mikio in particular and Catalina because they just uh, reveled in delight going down. When you do set up your tent, obviously. Uh, make sure to peg it down very well because the winds uh, one evening were so strong that uh, they were bending uh, the tent uh, in half where the walls like kind of coming up to your face and, and actually it did tear a corner of that tent. So you do have to be prepared uh, when you're out there. There are markers um, as you're walking amongst the dunes um, that that guide your way. And on the clear days, obviously, uh, easy to do so, but not so when the wind is kicked up. And we had a different, a few different experiences because we had a few days that were a little bit warmer and, uh, and the sand felt very buttery um, and, and not as cold. And then, uh, and then we had a few days where the temperatures dropped pretty severely. And on those days, uh, the sand was hard as rock um, and it really was tricky to meander up and down it. Uh, one of the cool uh, items that I would recommend to bring if you're camping, you're doing this backcountry trip in White Sands National Park, is uh, is down booties, the types that you use for, for winter adventures because the temperatures do drop a fair bit in the evening there. And these uh, these booties obviously protect you from the wind and they're quite warm. Um, and, the, and the sand is so soft to walk around that, uh, that they're kind of ideal uh, footwear to have while there. Um, it is a destination that, that, that I highly recommend an experience uh, of a lifetime to, to camp amongst these, these dunes, but you do have to be uh, properly prepared because things can go wrong uh, in, in the, in these trips because people aren't prepared um, for this primitive camping trip. Uh, for your, the nearest vault toilet is uh, at the trailhead approximately 1.6 kilometers away from each site. So the distance between uh, the trailhead and where you park and, and your car is, is very, really not far at all. But uh, but you can get quite disoriented if uh, if it's windy and, and whatnot uh, and the sand's getting kicked up. So you do have to be careful. And in the dark, they really don't want you doing anything 
in the dark uh, away from your campsite because uh, people do get do get lost and and during the evening it's it's uh, it increases the risk of obviously come, becoming disoriented uh, and being lost. Um, campfires are not permitted in this national park um, as they are not in many other ones as, uh, as well. Camp stoves are allowed, but they must be elevated at least six inches above the sand. Um, heat from campfires and camp stoves has melted the sand before. You really got to be sure to have some proper hydration out there. So bring lots of water. Um, your the, the wind really dehydrates your skin uh, quite quickly. Uh, net for navigation, bring your permit trail map, your park map, a compass, uh, and the GPS really isn't, isn't uh, necessary. That being said, it's one of those things that uh, if you do get lost, it's that you wish you had with you. Uh, sun protection, wear a wide-brimmed hat, uh, you definitely, uh, and sunglasses, you definitely want to protect yourself from the sun. Uh, f- flashlight, uh, of course, uh, definitely an item uh, to bring along. Uh, they highly recommend that you bring your cell phone and a portable charger, um, brightly colored bandana, signal mirror, and a whistle. All of these things, obviously, because people do get lost out there, do get disoriented, and this helps you find your way back. Uh, a first aid kit is is a must. Um, and, and, uh, obviously warm clothing and everybody knows that I highly recommend that you take Merino wool clothing for, for this, um, spectacular, uh, spot really driving around New Mexico when we were in that area and looking at the highway and the, the towns in general, I was like, I didn't, I couldn't imagine that there would be, uh, such a neat splendor, uh, so close by. I think it's uh, definitely a destination that I would bring uh, the the family and the kids again, particularly as the kids grow up, because I think they'd really enjoy just playing around the sand for a few days. Um, and it really, it, it is a, a, a different, it doesn't really feel, it feels like a squeaky sand. It's hard to describe, um, but uh, but surreal nonetheless. We did take, as I mentioned, our toddler at the time, Mikio, he was about three, and Katrina, I think, would be around one. And they had uh, a blast out there. Now, if you are taking kids into a backcountry adventure like this one, you obviously have to make sure that you're quite prepared with uh, with the, their sleeping bag and the, the proper uh, outerwear and clothing for them as well. Because even though you're not very far from the camp spot, stuff can go wrong quite quickly. So, uh, so there you go. White Sands National Park. Um, likely the coolest part of it comes in the evening when the skies just burst ablaze in stars. If you go on to uh, our Instagram, uh, you can see some really neat pictures where the skies are absolutely alive with, with stars. Um, so yeah, highly recommend. And I thought it's only adequate that, uh, that now that I am in Whistler and that the ski season is winding down, that I uh, tell you a story about one of my backcountry skiing adventures because for so many of the pictures when the people look at the white sands they uh, they think that I was in the snow so I thought it's apt to make a contrast from White Sands National Park to a backcountry ski trip that I had the snow was falling thick slowly the day had began late already Morning had dwindled with the one-hour drive from Whistler and with some additional practicing with our rental avalanche transceivers we skinned up through timeless and towering pines. The pine boughs went with fresh powder. The week before, we had explored Ceres Creek 
and were totally hooked on the experience. Backcountry skiing or ski touring is a deeply meditative and exhilarating sport. Long hours of intense skiing up a mountain, rewarded by short bursts of downhill through virgin powder with panoramic views, sums it up, I would say. We'd crossed our first avalanche route safely. We were getting more confident. Skiing knee-deep in powder is addictive, so we thought we would explore Marriott Basin. Um, this is a, a backcountry recounting that I'm telling you about uh, from a few years back when we were just getting into it. We'd been skiing for hours already, perhaps zigzagging more than necessary, getting to know our backcountry bindings and balancing our precarious loads. It is an art, I tell you. Our map consisted of a few pages torn out from John Baldwin's On Skis Ski Touring Guide, also known as the Bible for Whistler's Backcountry. Who needs a map when you have the descriptive writings of a fellow who knows the region like we know our commute home? A GPS, though, was in the bottom of my bag, just in case. Our legs were burning and our packs felt like anvils. The air was crisp. We felt alive, unfiltered. That's what raw nature makes me feel. Unfiltered. Natural. We had been skiing for hours. The snowfall got thicker and heavier. Our skis lost themselves in the powder. Only the tips were visible. Our fatigued faces cracked large grins. Snow is a beautiful thing for the skier. The sun was dipping fast, and still no hut in sight. The ascent was beginning to feel endless. Did I read his directions wrong? The pine trees had shrunk and dusk was upon us when the quirky gothic dome of the Wemdy Thompson hut came into sight. Set in Marriott Basin, it is surrounded by numerous peaks and super ski lines all around. Just seeing it re-energized us. We quickly took our overloaded packs filled with tripods and camera gear, grabbed some bare necessities for being out on the mountain, and headed back out the door to catch a run before it was too dark. Lightened up, we skinned up the slope behind the hut, our tracks quickly erased by that continued snowfall. Finally, we reached that moment when we would finally get to ski downhill. We removed the skins from our skis and packed them away, grabbed our earphones, and got ready to head downhill for the very first time that day. In the last moments of the day's light, Bella and I had one of the best ski runs of our lives back down to the Wendy Thompson hut. It lasted a whopping five <laughs> minutes, but you can see in the photos, which here obviously you can't see, but you can imagine from my description that the run was just bliss and entirely worth it because it was absolutely a powderous day. So a little bit of a contrast there on uh, on being in the sand and being in the snow. But I think I'm going to keep up this uh, this trend the other day where I told you a little bit. I, I, I like to contrast things. And as we were with sand, now we went to snow, and now we head back to sand for me to tell you of our eight favorite beaches in the world. And I had I had jumped in a tiny bit um, the other day on one of the podcasts on a few beaches that we absolutely love. But this description today of my favorite places 
for you to put your beach bottom on. Uh, here you go. So Pineki, this is one that I had already told you about, Turks and Caicos. With a barrier reef protecting the Turks and Caicos Islands, the sea rarely gets very rough around these islands, making it ideal for swimming or spending lots of time in the water. Pine Key is a private island with about three dozen houses, so the beach is pretty much always devoid of people, except for the occasional small tourist boat. But with a few kilometers of stretch, you'll often miss them, and the color of the water is splendid. Coming in at number two, we've got Shan Can Reserve in Tulum, Mexico, a long stretch of desolate beach that's inviting for long walks and superb views. A few species of turtles use it for nesting during summer months, but trust me, it's an experience you'll never forget. The waves depend on the wind, but you can have glass-like water or four-foot waves. It's a perfect place to kite surf, and we've often spent days doing that. Now, alas, unfortunately... Um, during the the summer month, during the winter months, when the wind kicks up a, fit, a fair bit more, Shankan does get a lot of uh, the sargassum seaweed on it. So, so I hope that can be one day remedied because it is getting to be overwhelming. Coming in at number three, Bazaruto Archipelago in Mozambique. Be completely prepared to be <laughs> be prepared to be completely blown away by the views from all of the beaches in the Basarudo Archipelago. And this reminds me a lot of the sand dunes of, uh, of New Mexico, except imagine these like little islands out in the middle of a green water and the sand dunes are just protruding like sand castles laying there by some child playing on a massive scale in the ocean. You can climb up the giant sand dunes to get the best vistas of swirling hues of blue and green as you breathlessly take in the Indian Ocean. It's the perfect place to relax in between scuba dives. Go down to the beach to inquire about different fishing boats or dive boats going out from Vilanculo to get there. Now, heading back to uh, a favorite destination, which my lady, I'm sure, will has been I know I wouldn't say begging, but demanding and begging <laughs> that we go back to is Bambara Beach in Middle Caicos, Turks and Caicos. A place we plan on going to back to time and time again is beautiful Bambara Beach in Middle Caicos. Powdery sand, rarely a soul to be seen, and waters that you could spend hours just looking at. It's tricky to get here, but well worth it. There's an island called Pelican Island, about a 25-minute walk straight out from shore that you can walk to during low tide or kite to if you brought your gear. So that's the spot that we uh, found by sea, by doing a sea kayak camping kite surfing trip in Turks and Caicos. And we would go along the coastline of these little islands and then camp on these beaches and kite surf from them. Mahawal, number five. From Mexico, another gem where you can get the best of both worlds. You can stay in a little cabin on the beach with all the amenities of a restaurant, kite school, and activities, or you can drive a little further down to find some desolate stretches. Of course, a stop by the Mahawa landmark tree is a must. Is a must. I'm I'm not sure how many hurricanes it survives, but it's still standing stoically, and it it's the perfect photo. <laughs> it's just we we spent a few hours there because it's so unique. 
if you are a kite surfer, Punta Mosquito from in Isla Holbosch, best place to kiteboard and is on the somewhat deserted size, side of the island. You can walk out knee-deep for a couple hundred feet in crystal clear water. Punta Coco goes into the perfect category for one main reason, the sunsets. As it faces west at the end of a day's kiting, we'd sit there and ponder the magnificent sunsets, excited for what would tomorrow would bring. Coming in at number seven. Back to Turks and Caicos. Can you tell we like the Turks and Caicos? Mary Kay in North Caicos. Access to this beach is best by water. In our case, it was by kayak. The sand is soft and not a single footprint. You're likely to see eagle rays, stingrays, and even nurse sharks mulling around. The color of the sea is one of those where you can just sit there staring for hours. And finally, let's come up with a beach that's far, far away from where I am right now. Whitehaven Beach in the Whitsunday Islands in Australia. And I'll never forget camping on these islands because we had to get evacuated when a storm was coming in and we weren't allowed to stay longer. Um, and, and the wind was getting to be, excuse me, pretty ferocious but they are beautiful the only thing that i'm not a huge fan of regarding australia and uh and perhaps even these islands is that everything kills you man i mean like a small jellyfish the size of like an inch kills you the box jellyfish the size of i don't know a square one foot by one foot box kills you the crocodiles that could be coming in to uh, that are swimming around the the mouth of the rivers in the ocean well yes they kill you as well uh the sharks <laughs> yes they once in a while like to take a bite out of you as well so there's just so many things in australia the the spiders the snakes the scorpions that that uh, that that is just one of the reasons that as a destination i was always a bit more wary because I do like to be out and about in the back country. Um, and so when you're out in nature and pretty much everything that's living kills you, it's kind of sketchy. That being said, this beach was absolutely gorgeous. Sitting on Whitsunday Island, Whitehaven Beach is a must stop for those on the east coast of Oz. Seven stunning kilometers of beautiful white sand that doesn't get too hot. That's right, because it's primarily made up of silicate that doesn't heat up like regular sand. During the day, a few tourist boats unload their day trippers. The good thing is that they all head off before sunset. Get your park pass, grab your tent, some food, and there are great camp spots in the shade at the edge of the beach. We even brought our folding sea kayaks so that we could explore the long coastline. Um, and it was something unique. I do remember another funky thing about this uh, this island uh, and these beaches and the sand. And it was the horrendous cacophony of noise that the birds would make in the morning. It, it really sounded like someone was killing a small child. Um, and that's the sound that you wake up to uh, there in the morning every day and and I've never heard such horrible sounding birds in my life it it really comes out of like 
a book like Odysseus or a story like Odysseus where you have to battle the ghastly sounds and deadly sounds of the evil seabirds of Whitehaven Beach. I don't know. White, white, I don't know if Whitehaven should have made it to the list. <laughs> With all of the things that I've told you, you must be asking, but why did you keep it on? And that is because the sand is indeed so beautiful and the view so pristine. And you know what else happened on that beach that I almost forgot about? I killed a camera there. I had put the tripod uh, at the edge of the ocean and I had gone back to sit uh to sit on a ledge and admire uh, a ledge and to sit on basically at the back of the beach was where the camp spots were. And there was a little hill there. Um, to, so to sit on that and admire the view, excuse me. And, um, and so I'm sitting there and uh, my lady says to me, Oh, Hey, you know, you put the time-lapse out there. Uh, and I said, yeah, yeah. And she's like, you know, the tide's going to start coming up uh, pretty quickly and moving the tripod. And, uh, and that could, could well kill the camera and I'm like oh yeah that that should be fine and just as I said that in the distance I could make out my tripod falling over into the salt water of the Indian Ocean and uh and that was very sad sorry not the Indian Ocean but uh with, with Sundays these islands uh is it part of the Indian Ocean uh no I don't think so this would be uh yeah south south I'm going to have to look at that. I don't really know. <laughs> but anyways, the camera fell into the water. And obviously, when electronics touch salt water, it is their end forever and ever. And so I killed an Icon D800 with a grand lens on it. Um, and for future, don't leave a time lapse somewhere where the tide is coming up. So there you go. That is my evening of sand from the white sand dunes of New Mexico and backcountry camping to what appears like sand and snowy backcountry skiing, and then back to the sandy beaches around the world that we have enjoyed. So I hope you enjoyed tonight's episode. I'm going to be doing some live podcasts, interviewing people in person, and I'm just figuring out how I'm going to... Uh, record live on call in at the same time so you folks can call in anytime you want and at the same time so that you can see a visual of of our interview but all of these more good things to come uh thanks to colin for, for having me on here and uh and tune in folks because life is short so make it sweet expeditioners roberto out <laughs>